Have you ever wondered if there were untold stories, omitted facts, and overlooked voices in the tale of America's history? Did you know that our perception of history can be manipulated by the way it's presented? Do you know how to differentiate between a historically accurate depiction and a politically motivated narrative when teaching or learning about American history? Welcome to the Conservative Classroom, where we're teaching the truth and preserving our values. I'm your host, Mr. Webb, and I'm glad you're here. This podcast is a haven for conservative teachers and patriots like you who believe in the importance of free speech, traditional values, and education without indoctrination. Each week, we dive into the issues that are plaguing our education system and keeping you up at night. Each episode, we offer common sense ideas to improve education in our classrooms and communities. You may feel like you're the last conservative educator, but I want you to know that you are not alone. By the way, if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. Together, we can teach the truth and preserve our values. In today's episode, we're talking to Ted Lamb, a veteran history teacher who's done extensive research into primary source documents. Now let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome a special guest to the conservative classroom, history teacher extraordinaire, Ted Lamb. One of the admins for the Facebook group, Conservative Teachers of America. He's here to discuss the true history of the United States and the importance of using primary source documents in teaching. Ted, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. And for the folks who may have missed out on the last episode we did together, uh, Ted shared with us how he got started in teaching. So you can go back and check that episode out for more of Ted's background. But what I'd like to ask you today, Ted, is go ahead and tell us who you are and why you're so passionate about teaching history. So, again, um, good afternoon, good evening, good morning <laughs> to whoever is listening to this at this time. Um, my, my name is Ted Lamb. And I am a career uh, teacher uh, in the public school system. This is my 27th year. I've taught on three different continents. I got my undergraduate in social studies education uh, to teach high school history. I went after graduated, I went to South Korea, taught conversational English for four years, a little over four, four point and a quarter years. And then came home and started on the substitute list uh, for different school divisions. And the one group that kept calling me back was the alternative school for behavioral students. And so um, I took a job with them and that made me, allowed me the opportunity to go back and get my master's in special education um, at that time. I have also served as a, an elected school board member in uh, the Portsmouth, uh, Portsmouth Virginia. I served two terms there, and I honestly thought I knew everything there was to know about public education, <laughs> um, but I didn't. So after that two terms, I said to myself, yep, I got my uh, PhD <laughs> in what public education is and what it's not. But um, 
but I love history. Um, I remember back in fifth grade, I had a history teacher that, um, you know, I mean, would do the standard of the, of the run of the mail, textbook and so forth. But I fell in love with the blue uh, continental uh, army uniforms and, you know, the red British soldiers. And when I started digging into the American Revolution, I just fell absolutely in love with it. And then it took me on to other paths in American history. And I just, it just started a love uh, passion that has continued over to this day. I mean, we finished school here uh, basically last Friday and I brought home um, half my classroom of <laughs> primary sources <laughs> that I'm putting together and documenting to be able to be used. So, um, that's a little bit about me. Can you explain what primary source documents are and why are they essential in teaching history? Yes. So primary documents basically means original firsthand account. So, for example, let's just say that um, you observed um, an accident. You were on your way to the store and you were walking and you observed an accident. And the police officer comes and um, takes your statement. And there were three other witnesses, too. And they come and they take each one of your statements. And that is going to now be recorded for them to make a decision, correct? Mm -hmm. That statement is a first-hand or first account because you were there. It is in your own words of what happened. The police officer is filling it in in his report. Of course, that turns into a secondary um, account, if you will, if he is going to put a, uh, if he's going to interpret it um, as such. The importance of using primary sources in history to teach it is because one, um, you don't. As a classroom teacher, or at least I, I'm probably old school in this, you it is not your job there to necessarily interpret or to um, tell your students what necessarily the Board of Education wants students to, to know, but you're there to teach history as it happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly with it. And the best way to do that is pri through the use of primary sources, because that is the accurate history of what happened. Not necessarily a textbook that might give an interpretation of what happened. I was going to ask, how do uh, primary source documents compare to traditional textbooks? But I think you said it wisely, that textbooks are an interpretation. And I can give you a... a a perfect example of that. So here in Virginia, we have um, we have the textbook that we use for um, to teach U.S. history, and in the colonial power section, if you will, when it talks about the East Coast of Virginia, it says that um, England was able to establish colonies on the East Coast because no other power really wanted to have any involvement. Um, on the East Coast. And I thought, wait a minute, that don't make sense. Because, and the reason why I know that is because I actually went, and I don't know if many people knows this or not, but Noah Webster, yes, the dictionary guy, he actually wrote an American history textbook, if you will, from basically um, from the beginning of time uh, 
all the way through up to, um, I want to say, the Constitution era, the 1800. And he wrote it. And many of the things that he wrote about, he would be a firsthand account to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that in the textbook, and I thought, something's not right. I turned to him, and he actually points out that, yes, the French actually tried to settle in South Carolina. And so, you know, you got to look at this. Which one am I going to hold more credence to? Someone that is closer to the event or a textbook that is written now based upon state standards, SOLs, which here is called standards of learning. Each state has them. Um, or what a major uh, publishing company wants um, you to know. That's very interesting. Can you tell us the history of the United States from your point of view, someone who's gone in and looked at all these original sources and how that might be different than if I were to pick up a textbook and read history of the United States? Oh, it's night and day. It's it's just night and day. And, and basically your textbook learning is basically going to be through the agenda or the lens of what that publisher or what that local school district wants you to know and to see. Uh, let me give you an example. And some people would say this is political. Well, no, not necessarily. It's historical as well. When we talk about something like separation of church and state, there's this tendency to say or to believe that that actually means that there is no uh, teaching of Christian religion in any way, shape, or form. We didn't have that. The founders didn't mean that. But if I was to, I could pull up from the New England Primer, which was a spelling and a reading uh, textbook that was used in this nation all the way up to the 19. 30s. And let me um, let me read right out of it exactly as some examples. Okay. And you tell me if this would pass today's standards. Are you ready? Yep. So it's got pictures as well as the words. And here it goes. A. In Adam's fall, we send all. B. It's a picture of a Bible. It says, thy life to mend this book attend. C, a picture, the cat doth play and after flay. <laughs> D, a picture, a dog will bite a thief at night. I mean, it's, it's clearly, um, as you go through it, it's clearly um, substantiated with, uh, tied straight with um, scripture, uh, the, the Bible, if you will. Um, Noah Webster created his dictionary. It's called the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary. It was the dictionary that was used that you would find the definitions of what the founding fathers would actually have used as defined as. Um, again, we go back to people say that we were founded on a secular uh, perspective. Not true, not the case at all. Um, if you look in the Declaration of Independence where it says these um, uh, all men are created equal, born with inalienable rights. When you look up that term inalienable, according to the Noah Webster 1828 Dictionary, inalienable uh, basically says that it means it is an inheritance. 
So what we call inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, was understood as that these are an inheritance given from God. So you don't get any more biblical or or uh, or Judeo-Christian right. than than necessarily that, but we keep pushing it, and you only find this out through uh, primary sources. Another example in this nation, we celebrate Black History Month in February, and most classrooms and most students will only come across the big ones. Uh, it's what I call the big ones: Martin mm-hmm. Luther King, Harriet Tubman. You know, probably uh, you throw in. Uh, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, maybe, um, Malcolm X, and all of those people are fine, not knocking it. But at one time in this nation, we were taught of other uh, American black heroes that you just will not find in a textbook anymore. Um, Joey, not to put you on the spot, (laughs) um, not trying to anyway, and and trust me, you're in good company with this. (laughs) Can you tell me... um, when the first black man was ever elected to a public office here in the United States? That's a great question. And no, I, I don't know. Most people would say, well, they were probably voted or, or elected after the Civil War um, during Reconstruction. And that's usually where you go with because we operate off a premise here that in the United States, that everyone before the Civil War that happened to be black were slaves or very few, were free. But we know that there was a gentleman by the Wentworth Wentworth Cheswell, who happened to also be known as the Black Paul Revere, who was elected multiple times um, to multiple um, elected positions in the, in the colony of Connecticut at that time. So just stop and think about that, because when you read that and you find that out, that changes the dialogue necessarily of what happens or what we think our history is in this nation. Were there slaves? Yes. Was it horrible? Yes. But it wasn't necessarily our whole history. Look at the paintings, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, will show you the hero, Peter Salem, who was actually a slave at that time, who shot and killed the British commander, which allowed for the colonists to actually get away. Um, So many different American heroes, black heroes, that we don't talk about. And I believe it was intentional because most of this stuff was taken out right around um, at the beginning of the, the 20th century, by Woodrow Wilson, who happened to be a uh, history professor who was writing history textbooks, and everyone just bought into that and intentionally took all of this stuff out. Well, that's mind-boggling. You would think on Black History Month, more of these, as you call them, these black heroes would be taught to children. You would think, <laughs> you, 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 would, you would think, you would think that you would want that um, done. But it's interesting that many of these were also black ministers. And my guess is that, you know, because we're so rooted in the separation of church and state, we don't want to necessarily bring that into play. Um, another one, for example, um, you know, each state has its own little theme or, or a slogan, if you will. 
Indiana is known as the Hoosier State. Do you know why? Why? Reverend Harry Hoosier. Back um, when that was still a territory. And you had um, many ministers of that time from the Great Awakening um, would even say this man was the real deal. He was black. He was never ordained. But they called him a minister because he actually went into that area, the Indiana area, um, at that time, you know, of course, called the Northwest area. And he presented the gospel and he changed lives. And he supposedly led so many people to the Lord that that's how the state got its name, the Hoosier State, one of so many different um, heroes. <laughs> so in your view, what's some of the most important moments in U.S. history for students to understand the true history. Bring us forward in time and talk about some moments in U.S. history that are important for students to understand that they currently have a misunderstanding of because they weren't taught from the primary source documents. Um, well, if, if you go all the way back, go back to 1607, students are taught that supposedly Jamestown uh, was just an economics enterprise. But when you actually look at its first and second and third charter um, from the London company, specifically its first, it was dual purpose. It was to create a country or a colony, excuse me, but it was also to share the gospel with the salvages, not savages, salvages. Mm. Um, when you look at the pilgrims that came over, um, there's primary documents that would actually show that they they didn't just take initially. There was no taking of land from the Indians because they thought less poorly of them. In fact, there was even um, cases recorded where there, there was a trial where an Indian or a Native American today um, would have his testimony was counted against a white person um, and the person was found guilty. We don't hear, we don't talk about those kind of things. Um, you come on right on up. We have this tendency to think that we bash Thomas Jefferson with regards to saying that he says in the Declaration of Independence, all men were created equal, but he had slaves and they didn't really mean that. But what you don't know is that Jefferson actually had in the original Declaration of Independence before the Continental Congress got it, he wanted to actually... Um, do away with slavery. But you don't hear that today. No. And there's no. so many other, yeah, I mean, there's so many other things that comes along here. Um, we gained our independence because of Yorktown, and you can say that ha that has just as much to do with um, General Lafayette and General Washington and all of those, but it was also had to do with James Amistad, who was able to get the information to Lafayette, who was able to get it to Washington, who said that Cornwallis was going to come up, and that's where he was headed. Um, in question with the whole thing about slavery and its evil, which again, it was, but um, there was a gentleman by the name of Charles Ball that um, he was a runaway slave. He had opportunity to fight for the British in the Revolution as well as in the War of 1812. But he stayed by our side because this was his home. And he encouraged others to also do the same thing. 
I, I mean, it it just goes on and on and on of of what's available. Well, what's the most important primary source document? If someone's listening and they think, you know, I want to go back to the original source, what's the first thing they should pick up and read? I think that would depend a little bit maybe on on uh, which era that they're looking at, if that makes sense. Um, if you're looking at the colonial area, I would argue if you're going to look at Jamestown, go to those charters that I talked about. If you're going to look at the Massachusetts Bay, um, go to the Mayflower Compact. Um, go to uh, John Winthrop's A City on a Hill. If you want to look at the uh, um, American Revolution, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Go to um, the Declaration of Independence. Um, look up some of these um, names of these individuals as well. Look at the congressional office that looks up like for Peter Salem and others that um, – did what they what they did um gosh uh if you wanted to come on up towards the civil war um there there's so many things look at what i call a magnificent seven who were the first elected black representatives from the south in the house of uh representatives and in the senate that did amazing things before um they were uh did not win re-election. So, I mean, that would be a good start. Now, you're in the process in your classroom of teaching 100% from primary source documents. Is that right? I am. That is where I'm going, yes. So, by the way, I'm trying to do this really, really – I mean, I've been doing a lot of this now, but next year I want to just go full-blown if I can (laughs) – um, where just pull up primary source documents to teach the story of history. Yes. And so you've already been using primary source documents. Oh, yes, many so. Um, if I can get away with the primary source document, I will go to that before I go to anything else. Mm-hmm. Can you think of an example of a primary source document that you use in your classroom and how you feel it contributed to the lesson or the student's understanding of the topic more so than a textbook would. Absolutely. Um, a, a great example of this would be the, um, the Boston Massacre. A textbook is going to show you basically, you know, the painting by Paul Revere of, you know, the colonists being shot down in, in cold blood um, as they were protesting against the, the British soldiers. But when you pull up primary source documents, you will actually find that it was a different story. Um, most people don't realize this either. John Adams actually defended those British soldiers. So you pull up, and we've pulled up the court transcript to actually find out exactly what happened on that night. And the painting is a perfect example of propaganda in many ways. Um, another one is has to do with a young boy by the name of Christopher Snyder, who I think was about age 11 or 12, just 10 days before the Boston Massacre. You got to ask the question, why were those colonists so infuriated like that, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of no taxation was rep- representation, but it was only 
about 10 days before, you had a 12-year-old boy that was shot and killed by a, a British customs officer. Um, and the Sons of Liberty really took that to full strength, if you know what I'm saying. So that tension and so forth, that also led to that. We look at that account as well. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I'll say that your students are lucky because it sounds, I mean, I was sitting on the edge of my seat practically. There's, there's, there's a lot there. And what bothers me the most is we have an amazing history. Yes, we've done some bad. Yes, we have warts. Yes, show me who hasn't. But what other nation in the history of man has turned around and was founded on Judeo-Christian foundation, and it's all right there in the primary source documents, that would turn around and send its own to go and fight for other people's liberties and freedoms to, to, to guarantee that they have a say in, in what they are doing. Um, and, you know, that's evolved, you know, over time. You're not going to find anyone else that does that. So for parents and other educators that are listening, where would they go to find these primary sources? So, you know, you can always do the whole Google search, but that can be tedious and long and difficult, right? Where I like to go to is um, avalon.edu.com. It's through Yale University. And you can go on there and you can pull down any primary source document from like 400 BC all the way through to the 20th century. And this has to do with Oh, I cannot tell you. That's what I practically brought home because that's how I'm going to be crafting my lessons. But you have everything in there from world history to American history to presidential speeches, lessons. I mean, all of it um, that, that's right there. But the key is you got to know how to then take that information and craft it into lessons. I will make it easy for our listeners. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I believe you shared that with me. I think I did, too. Um, If you don't mind me actually putting this out there, I'm working with a group to where I'm actually going to put together, hopefully here in the near future, like near, near future of actually creating an ebook of like a pick out 10 or 15 uh, uh, primary source documents and creating lessons off of that to where classroom teachers as well as homeschool uh, families would be able to get this ebook and you would have it right there. It would be a good intro to show you and teach you how to actually, you know, start using primary sources in the classroom. It wouldn't be so um, uh, scary, if you will. That's awesome. I did an episode a few weeks ago with uh, Patrick with True Corrective. If you haven't checked that out, that follows along with what we're talking about. I'll put it that way. So we've been talking about the past, and we've been talking about U.S. history and how things, you know, the importance of going to the primary source documents. And we talked about how education has changed over time in a previous episode. So my question is, how do you think teaching U.S. history 
will evolve in the next decade. Do you think we'll go back to primary source documents or do you think we'll get further away? Um, I, I, well, let me answer the easy part of that question. <laughs> um, if we're not careful, we're going to get further away because we know that, you know, when the people don't know or when knowledge is lacking, they perish. That's also a scriptural, uh, biblical principle as well. We've also got technology to look at here. You know, I'm becoming more familiar with this concept of AI, artificial intelligence, and what can be done and what they can do and how they can change things. That was my whole push of trying to get these documents myself um, printed off um, in order for me to have and to save and and, and so forth uh, with that. So, yeah, if we do not, if we're not careful um, we could lose it. And basically, I do think that there's forces that be that does want us to not know what our uh, history is, because there is a push to change, fundamentally shift and change us out of a representative republic over to more of a Marxist socialist mindset. Uh, usually in the episode, Ted, with a few key takeaways, if there was one thing you'd want the listener to remember from this episode, what would that be? That would be, don't, don't believe me, go to the sources. I tell my students all the time, um, you know, the news, the music, everything that's out there is going to tell you what they want you to hear or see. Check it out through a primary source. Um, and you may not like the primary source itself. You might not like what the primary source says, but it is what it is. Um, and that's the beauty of it. And that's and that right there is not sugarcoating history at all. That is what what happened and what it is. Also, too, I would say the one of the takeaways would be the fact that you know, when it comes down to it, human beings, man, we're flawed creatures. We can do the utmost good, but we can also be and do some of the most evil things. That shouldn't deter us away from primary sources. In fact, that should encourage us even more to look and to read and to learn from them so that, as they say with the cliche, so that history doesn't repeat itself. Right. Well, I appreciate that. And as we wrap up the conversation, can you please share with our listeners where they can find more information about your projects, Conservative Teachers of America, History Moments with Ted, and how they can connect with you on social media? Uh, really anything that you want to promote or plug. Sure. Um, so I, I, and I, as you'll probably find out, and I know you know this a little bit, but I, I can be a busy guy. <laughs> so um, for myself, so if you're a conservative teacher um, or a homeschool parent, you can check us out on Conservative Teachers of America, which you get to hear the other side of the story of what conservative teachers go through. I also have a history group. It's called History Moments with Ted, which is all history, all kinds of history. Um, used mostly, uh, most of it on there is primary sources that's being used. In fact, we're, we're doing right now a whole section over 
the uh, federal convention, which known as the Constitutional Convention. And we're looking at the notes of James Madison and moving that forward um, as well. Also, too, and I didn't mention this before, and it just, wow, I can't believe I did this. <laughs> but um, we understand that, you know, there's a fight going on. And not every teacher is buying into this. Mostly conservative teachers have said enough is enough. But um, we also support parents. And so you can also find me as the state coordinator for parents' rights in education. Um, And so we can be found on Facebook as well there. Um, And you can also do Google search for the website too. But it's parents' rights in education national because we are a national uh, nonprofit group, as well as Parents' Rights in Education, Virginia. Awesome. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ted. It's been a pleasure having you on the Conservative Classroom. And I know our listeners will appreciate your insights on using primary source documents. Yep. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Conservative Classroom. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ted Lamb. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Most importantly, share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. You can also connect with us on social media and share your thoughts on today's episode. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to teach the truth and preserve our values, consider showing support for the conservative classroom and your fellow conservative teachers by showing off some conservative swag. Visit our merch store by clicking the link in the show notes. In addition to clothing and coffee mugs with our logo, name, and slogan, we also have items with our colors and schoolhouse logo only. We know that it's hard to be openly conservative in some school districts, but your silent show of support may help you find other conservatives in your community. In other words, you might not be comfortable wearing a shirt that says the conservative classroom on it, but if you wear one that has a low-key logo, you won't be pushing your politics on your liberal friends or students, but you might just discover another closet conservative. Even if you don't, you'll know that you are quietly supporting the values that are best for your kids, your school, and your community. Or find more ways to support the podcast at theconservativeclassroom.com. That's theconservativeclassroom.com. Until next time, this is Mr. Webb reminding you that you are not alone. See you next time on The Conservative Classroom teaching the truth, preserving our values.